You are listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hello, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and I want to thank you for being here today as we are progressing through the NASM CPT7 course content. And we're going to go through basic and applied science right now. And then next session, we'll get into nutrition concepts. And then we will move into the next domain. So we have domain one, we'll have three parts, and then we'll get into domain two, three, four, five, and six, and take you through all of the chapters as an overview, all the chapters, in the entire NASM CPT-7. So I do hope this kind of serves two purposes here. For those of you that are looking to take the test, this is an excellent support for you as you go through the learning materials as a general understanding. We're not giving away answers to the test. It helps with a general understanding of what's going on. And yes, it will be wonderfully supportive for you in preparation for the examination. I think it's gonna, you're going to find it really helpful. But also for those of you who are already NASM certified, you're already personal trainers, corrective exercise specialists, performance enhancement specialists, so on and so forth. You may have gone through this. You may have been through this information. But what I find is that a lot of times once we go through it, we take that test, we expand our knowledge in many other aspects, but sometimes we forget the basics. And going back through this course, this content, as we're going through the, the webinar for CPT-7, I think that those of you who have already taken the test will find this information really helpful and then maybe even reintroduce you to some things where you're like, oh, maybe I'm going to work on that with my clients, or maybe I'm going to apply this, or some of you are teachers, and you can look at it and go, this might be a really good way of explaining this to students. So if that's the case, I hope it works for you. Thank you for being here, and let's get into it. Now, there will be a, um, um, a link in the show notes, so you can go to the link, and if you download this, we're going to start this episode on... Um, on uh, 17, slide number 17, the cardiorespiratory system. So let's get into the cardiorespiratory system and we'll look at um, a couple of things. So obviously there's the cardiovascular system, which is the heart, and then the vascular system, which delivers blood and returns blood back to the heart. And then the respiratory system, which is include the lungs and allows us to breathe in and oxygenate the blood to breathe out and then take the carbon dioxide from the blood and release that back out into the environment. But let's go through what I think is important and just give you a heads up on the blood flow through the heart. So there are four chambers in the heart. The two at the top are called the atria and the two at the bottom are called ventricles. So I think about atrium, like if you go into uh, a building that has glass on top, you're at the top, you see through the top, that's the atria, it's what's on the top. So the atrium is on the top of the heart. Now the ventricles are down below and as the heart kind of makes a V shape at the bottom, then think of ventricles down at the bottom. So there's a right side and a left side. And what happens is that the right atrium receives blood from the body 
that really doesn't have that much oxygen in it. The oxygen has already been utilized and pulled through the metabolic processes, and now it is more kind of a carbon dioxide filled. So I have this, this low oxygen blood returning to the heart, and it goes into the right ventricle, and then it gets pumped from the right ventricle down, uh, sorry, it gets pumped into the right atrium, so up top. This is very important. So as it returns to the heart, it goes into the right atrium and then gets pumped into the right ventricle through something called the tricuspid valve. And then the right ventricle pumps this low oxygen blood from that to the lungs through the pulmonary valve. So remember, pulmonary is, means lungs. So the pulmonary valve it goes through and delivers that blood to the lungs. Now the lungs are providing oxygen to the blood and removing carbon dioxide. And now the oxygenated blood from the lungs goes to the left atrium. And then it goes to the left ventricle through what's called the mitral valve. And then from the left ventricle, it gets pumped. This oxygenated blood gets pumped through the aortic valve into the large artery, the aorta, uh, and into the rest of the body. And that cycle, this closed circuit, allows for blood to flow and continue to go through the heart, go past the lungs to get rid of carbon dioxide and to receive oxygen. The next one takes us into the respiratory system and just a brief overview. So we have a lot of systems that we're just gonna do touch points on. So the respiratory system, What's its function? Its function is to inhale and get oxygen and exhale and get rid of carbon dioxide. And it includes the airways, the lungs, and the respiratory muscles. And there are muscles that allow for us to breathe. Uh, and we think about muscles like the diaphragm allows for breathing and things like that. So that is the respiratory system. Just brief touch points on that as we continue to move on into the digestive system. So the digestive system, what's the function of it? The function of the digestive system allows the food we eat and the liquids we consume to be digested, to be processed, and then to be absorbed. And as it gets absorbed, then all the nutrients from that absorption get to be delivered into our system. So there are three functional regions. There's the head and the neck, which includes the mouth. So it allows us to eat, we eat our food, we send it down into the upper gastrointestinal tract and then into the lower GI tract. And this is our, our system. There are many components to it, which we're not gonna get into in this particular one, but there are things like the ascending colon, the descending colon. Obviously our stomach is a big component of that, but this is just to highlight a function and region. All right, moving on to endocrine system on slide 20. Now, the endocrine system consists of, and we didn't used to talk about the endocrine system very much. That wasn't a thing that we really addressed, but it is so valuable for us to understand at least a little bit more. And again, this is just an overview of the endocrine system, but there are things within our endocrine system that it, it allows us to, to better function and uh, our metabolism is oftentimes wrapped up within our endocrine system, certainly our moods, 
many things with the endocrine system. So we have endocrine glands and, or sometimes referred to their host organs or glands. And what happens with these is that they produce the hormones and then the hormones are chemical messengers and they send out messages and those get picked up by target cells or receptors. And so the hormones will land in certain receptors. A receptor will then say, ah, now we've been, uh, we've got this hormone in here and it's going to tell us what to do and how to behave. So we've got these endocrine glands like the hypothalamus, the pineal gland, the pancreas, thyroid, pituitary, adrenaline, reproductive glands. These are all components of it. And they produce these hormones. They produce chemical messengers. And many of these chemical messengers are vital to us in, in our mood, in our metabolism, and even our sleep and how valuable sleep is to the effect of hormones and how hormones are in the effects of our sleep. So we have to actually address these. We're not going to go into depth about the hormones, but speaking to some of the hormones like insulin and glucagon, which are both out of the pancreas, catecholamines are there, cortisol, testosterone, and estrogen, growth hormone, insulin-like growth factor, thyroid hormones. These are all important hormones for us to at least be a little familiar with, that their presence is important to how our body and our metabolism functions. So again, just a, a highlight, a touch point on the endocrine system, and we will now move on into a little more human movement science. So let's start with this. We're going to go into so slide 21 on the deck, anatomical position. Now I'm going to read this just word for word. So we're all on the same page. It's the position with the body erect, the arms at the sides and the palms facing forward. It's the position of reference for anatomical nomenclature, which means if I'm going to do any movement, I'm going to reference anatomical position and what that movement is from that position. So we use this to describe terminology. Now, an erect position doesn't necessarily mean a standing position. It's as if we're standing, but we could be lying down. We could be floating in space. And if we stood with our body erect, our arms to our side and palms facing forward, that would still be anatomical position. So it requires the use of consistent body position. Anatomical position is just consistent. So if I flip and I'm in a, um, uh, let's say an inversion table, and I'm doing anatomical position, the joint actions are still the same. The directions on the body, everything is still the same. It is our consistent position, our standard reference posture where the body's upright and the arms are by the side, head, face forward, palms of our hands forward, anatomical position. Now there are anatomical locations and you may have gone through this. You should be familiar with these. For those of you who are taking the test, familiarize yourself with these, but those of you who are trainers that are currently working as fitness professionals, you should know these already and be familiar with these. So there's, and some of them you may be familiar with without even having to have studied. So from anatomical position, we're looking at anterior and posterior. So anterior and posterior. Anterior is the front of the body in anatomical position. Posterior is the back of the body. So if you ever heard to have a seat on your posterior, that certainly helps to know that that is the backside of the body. We have 
superior, which means toward the head, and inferior means away from the head. So superior towards the head, uh, inferior away from the head. We have proximal and distal. Proximal, usually these are used on the appendages most often where I have a proximal closer to the center of my body and distal farther away from the center of my body. And then there's medial and lateral. So if I'm standing in anatomical position with my palms facing forward, my pinky is medial and my thumb is lateral. The outside of my arm is lateral. So sometimes you have lateral raises for a shoulder raise. And then the medial side of the arm, uh, gastrocnemius. We have a medial and a lateral gastrocnemius. So lateral, uh, medial is towards the midline. So towards the midline, medial. And then lateral is away from the midline. So learning these, being familiar with these is going to be very, very important. Um, let's move on to the next slide. And these are gonna be the planes of motion. Now planes of motion, there, there are two that tend to make sense and then there's one that just throws everybody off. So let's talk about the first one. And it's not that it makes sense, but at least it's not confusing. <laughs> so there are three planes of motion. There's the sagittal plane, the frontal plane, and the transverse plane. And so the sagittal plane is a plane that divides the body from top to bottom and side to side. So the mid-sagittal plane is going to go between our eyes, down the middle of our nose, down the middle of our chin, the middle of our chest, splits our legs. That is the mid-sagittal plane. So any plane that, that, that we move in that follows that. So if I'm walking, I'm walking along that plane of motion. If I'm doing lunges or if I'm doing bicep curls or tricep extensions, those tend to be in the sagittal plane. Now, sagittal plane, if you look at the muscles, there are any muscles that move us up and down, like forward and backwards in front of our body, up and down. So think about it. The muscles run that direction. If you take um, a visual of the muscles in the body, so many of the muscles run up and down on the anterior or posterior side of our bodies. Well, those will often be the ones that move us in the sagittal plane. So I think about bicep curls, and because sagittal plane, there are joint actions that are associated with them. Sagittal plane is going to have flexion and sagittal plane will have extension. So think about this flexion and extension. Uh, sagittal plane bisecting our body into right and left sides. And then we do flexion and extension. Well, what is flexion? What is extension? We'll get into those in just a minute. Let's get into the frontal plane. Frontal plane, this is the one that confuses people. I'm moving my arms to the side. I have a screen that's behind me. And if you're watching this, you can see I've got a screen behind me. Now, this is a frontal screen. It is behind me. It could divide me right in half. And if I'm doing this, I'm moving along that frontal screen or that frontal plane. Sometimes we lift our arms in front of us and we go, why isn't that the frontal plane? Well, think about this. The frontal plane, we didn't actually have these joint movements or planes of motion first. We had planes of dissection. So if you wanted to see, for instance, the front of my brain, you would go side to side, cut like this, 
And you could pop it off and go, boop, oh, there's the front of his brain. Well, now I have planes of not dissection, but now I have planes of movement. So I'm doing that same thing. Anytime you see me move, and you can see my entire body, my arms moving to the side, my legs move to the side, I do a side bend, those are frontal plane movements, and you can see everything I'm doing from the front. If I do elbow flexion, then you can see my arm, my forearm blocks my upper arm in elbow flexion. So if you can't see me from the front, it's not frontal plane. If I do a squat, you don't see my full body from the front, that's not frontal plane. But if I do a jumping jack, right, or if, if I do a side bend, then you can see me from the front, that is the frontal plane. The joint actions associated with that are abduction, abduction, moving away from the midline of the body, and adduction, moving towards the midline of the body. And then there's a transverse plane. A transverse plane is going to bisect the body into upper and lower parts, and it allows us through that vertical axis to create rotation. Those are our planes of motion. Now, the joint actions that are associated with that, we talked about this before, so it's the next slide, 34. We've got flexion and extension. Flexion and extension take place in the sagittal plane. Flexion, here we go. Bending at a joint where the relative angle between two adjoining segments decreases. What does that mean? That means if I'm bending at my elbow, this way, there is a decrease in angle between these two bones around my joint. As I extend my elbow, then there is a decrease in angle of the adjoining sections. There is a decrease in the angle between the two bones around a joint. So that would be flexion, decrease in angle of these two adjoining segments at a joint, the bones. Extension where the relative angle of two adjoining segments or bones increases. Well, what about abduction and adduction? Well, abduction means moving away from the midline of the body. So if the midline of the body, keep that in the body, not the head, just go midline of the body right here. If my arms move away from the midline of the body, they are being abducted. If you are abducted by aliens, you have been taken away. So your arms are being abducted from the midline of the body. Well, put them back. Put those people, the aliens, put them back. How are you going to do that? You're going to add them back to society. A-D-D, adduct. You put them back into society, and then they tell everybody they've seen aliens, and we go, what? So we've got abduction, moving away from the body. Adduction, moving back towards the midline of the body. That can happen at our hips. Our legs can go into abduction. Our arms can go into abduction and adduction. That's easily seen. But then there's a tricky one. So AB and adduction always take place in jumping jack, abduction, adduction, abduction, adduction. But then there's horizontal abduction and horizontal adduction. And sometimes you'll hear people refer to AB and adduction just to articulate more clearly. So if I say abduction, you're like, wait, wait, was that AB or was it AD? So you'll oftentimes hear people refer to that and say abduction or adduction. Well, that can take place in the horizontal plane or the transverse plane, but you have to qualify it first. 
So you have to say horizontal abduction or horizontal adduction. Well, what does that mean? Think about a chest fly, for example. Horizontal plane, I go into my chest fly and my hands are getting closer and closer together out in front of me. They are adducting in the transverse or horizontal plane. So we'll call that horizontal adduction. As we move the arms away from the midline, they start to go back towards our side. They are abducting in the horizontal plane. That is horizontal abduction. So again, concentric phase, the lifting phase of a dumbbell fly. We are adducting as the dumbbell dumbbells move farther away from the uh, each other and out to our sides. We are abducting in the horizontal plane. All right, more joint actions. We got joint actions in still the horizontal plane. We have internal or medial rotation, and that is rotation of a limb or a segment of the body towards the midline of the body. So think about internal rotation at my shoulder and you see people doing exercises. Sometimes they'll do internal rotation exercises. Sometimes they do external rotation exercises. So as my arm moves towards my midline like this, that is internal rotation. And then I move my arm away from my body, rotating at the shoulder, that is external or lateral rotation. Now there's another one we're gonna point out here, and this, uh, for those following along, it's slide 25, and it's called pronation and supination, or more specifically, radio-ulnar pronation and supination. So there are two bones in the forearm. There's the radius and there's the ulna. One of the ways that I remember the radius is thumbs up, rad. Red radius, also where the radial artery is, which is named after that. So they're ba they're based on location. And then there's the ulna. Here's how I remember the ulna. I was taught this years ago. I've never forgotten it, and this has helped many people uh, pass this question on the test. Pinky ulna, pinky ulna, p u p u. Pinky ulna, pinky ulna, p u p u. Wonderful. You're like Rick. That's not funny. It's not designed to be funny. It is designed to help you memorize that and pass it on the test and it works. So pinky ulna on the same side from anatomical position, the ulna is on the medial side from anatomical position. The radius is on the lateral side. And what happens is the ulna is a stationary bone uh, where it's a hinge bone right at, a hinge joint right at the elbow but the radius can flip back and forth over the ulna. So when we are palm up, when we are palm up, it's a triplanar movement and it's, and, and, and it's called supination, supination. And then we have pronation and that is palm down. That is a palm down movement. Of the hand. So again, from anatomical position, we're already in a supinated position. Doesn't mean that that's how we stand or how we're supposed to stand, just anatomical position, our palms face forward in a supinated position. When the palms go down, then the radius flips over the ulna and that is called pronation. Radial ulnar pronation to be specific. All right, let's talk about the muscle action spectrum. The muscle action spectrum says that there are ways that muscles um, produce, reduce, and stabilize. So 
this is known as the muscle action spectrum. It can do, the muscles can do these three things. So let's talk about first eccentric, eccentric muscle action. It's not an eccentric contraction because the word contraction means to shrink, to shorten. And so you could say a concentric contraction, but it is an eccentric muscle action. What is that? That is the lengthening of a muscle. That is the deceleration of force. It is the reduction of force. Um, sometimes it's referred to as, in, in the gym world, gym lingo, as the negative. It is the negative. So you do a bunch of uh, uh, chest presses, uh, bench press, and then you got a spotter there and says, do one more, just get the negative. Slowly lower that down towards your chest and I'll help you get it up, right? So then you lower it down slowly. That is the eccentric. So if I'm doing a dumbbell chest press, let's walk through this together. I'm doing a dumbbell or a barbell chest press. What joint action is taking place here? What plane of motion first? This one's interesting. The plane of motion with my elbows out to the side and I am pressing in a typical fashion. So my elbows aren't in next to me. They're not adducted to me. They're abducted out to the side. And now I'm pushing away. So I look at that and I say, well, there is, there's a, a, a joint, a vertical axis that's going through my shoulder that my shoulder is spinning around. And if there's a vertical axis that I'm spinning around, that is a transverse plane joint action. So my shoulder, as I press up, I'm going into horizontal adduction. As I lower back down, I'm going through horizontal AB duction. Well, what muscle at my shoulder is working as I press up? Well, as I press up and I go through horizontal adduction in a chest press is the pectoralis, right? My pec major. Well, now do the negative. All right, so lower down. Which muscle is working? The same muscle. My pecs are decelerating that force. I'm not using my back muscles to help gravity pull it on top of me. I'm using my chest muscles, my pectoralis major, to decelerate how that goes down, lowers, descends towards my chest in that eccentric muscle action. I'm reducing force and the muscle is lengthening as I do so. And then maybe I get down to the bottom and I pause for a moment. I pause in what's known as an isometric action. Iso means same, metric is a unit of length. Same length, my muscle is neither lengthening nor is it con uh, concentrically contracting. There's no appreciable change in the length of the muscle. It is dynamically stabilizing that muscle, uh, that joint with the muscle there. Well, now I'm gonna lift it up. The lift is the concentric joint action. It is the shortening of the muscle. So the concentric shortening of the muscle, it is where we are producing force. The muscle is shortening. Remember we talked about last week was the, um, um, the Z-line to Z-line, the sarcomeres start to shorten in the sliding filament theory. So this is when they shorten in a concentric muscle contraction. And one of the things we do is we'll talk about tempo. So tempo, I might say, let's do a three, two, one tempo. If I do that, we always start with eccentric first, 
And this is not just NASM. This is in general. When you look at the research, research will do eccentric, then it will list the isometric, then it will list the concentric action tempo. So if it's a 4-2-1 tempo, that means you are decelerating, you are lowering your, the force, you're decelerating force, you're lengthening the muscle, you're getting the negative for four seconds. And then you pause isometrically for two, and then concentrically you lift for one count. So that's why you might see uh, four, two, one tempo, or you might see a two, zero, two, two, zero, two would be lower the weight for two, no pause at the bottom, no isometric contraction, just shift right into a concentric lift. So that is an overview of the muscle action spectrum. Now we have muscles and some are really focused as movers. Some are primary. Some are synergist or assisting muscles. Some are opposing muscles. And then some muscles are designed really to stabilize. So we're gonna go through this. There are the primary muscles in a concentric action are going to be the agonist. Agonists work as the prime movers. So think about the gluteus maximus is the agonist. It is the prime mover for hip extension. So if I'm standing up out of a squat, my gluteus maximus should be my primary hip extensor. And then we have synergist. And synergist are muscles that assist the prime mover. They assist the agonist during movement. So you could look at your hamstrings as being synergist to the glutes in hip extension. The posterior fibers of the adductor magnus would be the synergist to the gluteus maximus in hip extension, the agonist there. Interestingly, sometimes we get something called synergistic dominance that takes place. And that's when maybe the glutes as the agonist, the primary mover, aren't doing their job that well. And so the synergist, the assisting muscles, the helpers start to take over or they start to dominate the joint actions in that movement, hence synergistic dominance takes place. Well, we've got other muscles as well. So if I'm looking at a primary mover, then there's a muscle on the other side of a joint that's going to be known as the antagonist. And it works in opposition of the prime mover. So it is eccentrically lengthening as that muscle is concentrically going through its range of motion. So think about as I go into hip extension, my glutes primary driver and my eccentrically lengthening of my psoas, my, uh, my hip flexors, not just my psoas, we have numerous hip flexors. So the hip flexors are being lengthened in that. So those are the antagonists. They are the posing muscles to the primary mover. And then they're gonna be stabilizers. So if we just stay thematically at the hip, right? So my, I'm going lifting out of a squat. So my concentric lift out of a squat, I'm in the sagittal plane, I'm going through hip extension and glute is the agonist, the primary mover. My hamstrings and my posterior adductor magnus are my synergist, the antagonist to my primary hip extensors. Those are gonna be my hip flexors. And then they're stabilizers. A lot of times these are in different planes of motion. So think about my glute medius and my adductors. One is on the lateral side, the glute medius. My adductors are on the medial side of that hip joint as it's going through the range of motion. 
And it's working to create stabilization in the frontal plane and in the transverse plane to help stabilize that, to keep me, me my movement, our movement, moving in the sagittal plane, minimizing the deviation. They are stabilizers, muscles that support or stabilize the body while the prime movers and the synergist and the antagonist are going through their patterns. These stabilizers have more of an isometric component. They are not having any real appreciable change in length, but they are helping to stabilize our body. Also think about the muscles of the core as maybe we're loaded, like in this picture on uh, slide 27, she's got a uh, barbell on her back. Well, my stabilizers in my spine also have to be engaged in order for my legs to appropriately work, for my hips to go through the joint action that they are going through. So we look at these functions, concentric function, that is the lift. Think about, um, let's go gastrocnemius. Concentrically accelerates plantar flexion, right? That's our concentric function. Now I have um, an integrated function, function when it comes to contracting isometrically. There's stabilizers or eccentrically working agonists. So gastrocnemius isometrically stabilizes the foot and the ankle complex. It can do that isometrically. Gastrocnemius can eccentrically lengthen while going into dorsiflexion. And then it can concentrically shorten as we go into plantar flexion and lift on the balls of our foot, heels come up off of the ground. So another example of how things work in our body and we relate it back to the agonist uh, synergist, muscle actions, joint actions, things like that. And then finally, we've got open chained versus closed chain. And you may have heard this before. Sometimes, um, think about this. An open chain exercise is where the distal segments, arms and legs, are fixed. And in the picture here, you see somebody doing a pull-up. So it's a closed chain. My, my arms are fixed and my body is moving, but I'm at a fixed location with the distal segment. Same thing with a squat. My feet are on the ground and my body is moving. So the distal segments are not moving. My feet are planted. I'm in a closed chain and my body can move on top of it. What about an open chain? Well, the open chain is where the distal segments are moving. So I can do basically the same joint actions. So if I'm doing a frontal plane pull-up, I'm pulling myself up. And as I do that in the frontal plane, I'm going into this frontal plane adduction at my shoulder. I'm going into elbow flexion as I concentrically lift my body towards that bar. I can do the same joint actions with a lat pull-down, but be in an open chain because now my body is seated and my arms are pulling a bar to me. And that opening, the distal segments, going through the same plane of motion, the same joint actions, but I'm moving the bar towards me. In a squat, we talked about a closed chain with our feet stay planted. I move my body up and down. Or an open chain where I can do a seated leg press and my legs are moving, my body stays still. All right, so that's the difference between an open chain and a closed chain exercise. Um, another good example of doing squats, closed chain, and then being on a leg extension machine or leg curl machine. 
where you were sitting down and you're lifting your legs up and down. That's that's a good example of an, uh, a, a, an open chained exercise where the distal segments are moving in space. All right, let's go through a few more things and then we will wrap this portion up and we'll pick up where we left off for the next time. So here we go with something called the force velocity curve. And the force velocity curve describes the inverse relationship between force and velocity or how fast something moves. It's the referral of how our muscles ability to produce tension at different contractile velocities. And as the velocity of a concentric muscle action increases, its ability to produce force decreases while the ability to produce force increases as the velocity of a concentric contraction decreases. Rick, what are you talking about? All right, here's an example. I got a heavy uh, barbell back squat. The muscle produces a high amount of force, but we ain't moving fast, right? It is a slow lift. In fact, if you look at our tempo in the max strength lifts, so max strength lift might say, hey, we're going to do in max strength training one rep to five repetitions. Cool. What's our tempo? And you'll see XXX for our eccentric isometric con uh, concentric. What does that mean? It means we're not counting it. You're moving as fast as you can. And you say, great, let me get underneath that bar. And you start to do a heavy squat and you move as fast as you can. How fast is that? Oh, it's not. You're not moving fast. It's a heavy load. It is an inverse relationship between muscle force production and velocity. Conversely, think about a squat jump. And that squat jump, the velocity of the movement is high, but the force output is low compared to doing a heavy barbell back squat. So that's that's what's happening kind of ideally in this force velocity curve. And then when you look at it also, during an eccentric muscle action, as the contraction velocity increases, the ability to develop force also increases. And it's believed that you do this as a result to use the elastic components of the connective tissue surrounding and within the muscle, similar to the loading phase of the stretch shortening cycle. So simply put, the faster the eccentric contraction, the more force the muscle is capable of decelerating. When plotted on a graph, the inverse relationship between the eccentric and concentric contraction velocities and the amount of force they produce displays what's called the force velocity curve. All right, moving on to the next one. That is slide number 30. And these are levers. So just be familiar with first, second, and third class levers. And look at this. So the first class lever, you see the you see somebody's head. And that is an example of a first class lever. A first class lever has the fulcrum, which is the point of pivot. So you have a, uh, let's say like a seesaw here, uh, and you've got the fulcrum in the middle. You've got a resistance on one side pushing down, uh, and then the force on the other side is pushing down. It's trying to lift the resistance. So your head's like that. You have weight on the back of your head uh, or muscle on the back of your head trying to lift your chin, and the fulcrum is in between those two. So that is a first class lever. 
Uh, it's kind of like a circus trick, right? Where you got the fulcrum in the middle, you have one person on one side and the other person jumps on the other side. And so uh, I've got my resistance and then I have a force being applied to it. And it's trying to move that resistance on the other side of the fulcrum. Well, what about the next one, a second class? Uh, a second class lever is like a wheelbarrow. And so in a wheelbarrow, you've got the fulcrum, that point of pivot in the front, you have the resistance, the weight, the wood, whatever it is that's inside the barrel. And then you, on the other hand, have the effort. You're lifting up on the other side and you're able to move that wheelbarrow. Same thing here. And this is an example where the ball of the foot is the fulcrum and the body weight is your resistance and the effort is being applied via the calf muscle in order to do the lifting. And then finally, there's a third class lever. Uh, think of there's a point of pivot, so the fulcrum, and then the effort to lift, and then the resistance is farther down the lever. Well, this is a highly inefficient way to do it, and yet, this is how most of the limbs in the human body operate. They're third-class levers. An example of a third-class lever is going to be the forearm, right, where I've got my elbow, and that is the fulcrum. And then the tendon of my bicep attaches just past where the elbow joint is, and that is the effort. And then the resistance is quite a few inches away from where the tendon is, of the bicep in my hand. And that's why you could be lifting a 10 pound dumbbell, but your bicep has to produce many, many times the force of 10 pounds. So you're producing, let's say a hundred pounds worth of lift at the bicep to be able to lift 10 pounds that is in your hand, uh, you know, whatever, 15 inches away from your, uh, where your bicep attaches and a slight bit further from that point of pivot. So those are the levers. First class lever would be an example of, first of all, a seesaw, and that would be your head and your neck. Second class lever would be a wheelbarrow and think about your calves working to go into plantar flexion. And a third class lever would be uh, an example like a broom, or a fishing pole as you are trying to reel a fish back in. And this is how most of the muscles in the body uh, are, they're third class. All right, now briefly, let's go over energy systems. And I think these are important to highlight, and this will be the last thing that we talk in this particular episode. And the energy systems, just short introduction to help maybe create some understanding around it. There are three primary energy systems we'll look at. There's the ATP PC system. So adenosine triphosphate phosphocreatine. Just keep it ATP PC. Sometimes you'll see in text it'll be ATP CP for creatine phosphate. And that is, it's really good when you want to produce all out effort. All out effort, you are going to be using your ATP PC system and it gets exhausted very quickly. And then we have glycolysis. And glycolysis uh, kind of pick up where the ATP left off and it can last a little bit longer. So if you look at the chart here, um, you're gonna see on slide 31 where you see the red line and that's your ATP CP system and you see it 
at 100% intensity, and then it just drops off. So it drops off and goes really low and almost non-existent after 30 seconds. But really after about, I don't know, we'll look at uh, 10 to 15 seconds and there's a, a significant drop off. And then glycolysis can take over. And then there's the third one. And you see glycolysis can last about two or three minutes and then it drops down. And then oxidative system. And the oxidative system takes a while to build up, but once it builds up, then it can last for quite a long time. So the ATP PC system, it's high intensity. It works for short durations. It's not very efficient because it only lasts about 10 to 15 seconds of energy. But you've got this high capacity for force output. And if you look at this on uh, slide 32, you see creatine phosphate. You see a, uh, a C with a P attached to it. So it's a creatine with a phosphate molecule attached. And then you see a two P's, that's adenosine dye, phosphate. So adenosine two phosphates. Well, what we want, we want three phosphates. So creatine provides that phosphate group, that creatine phosphate says, I'm gonna give you a phosphate. And when it does that, it allows for us to quickly get a phosphate and then we can use force again. Quickly get phosphate, but, but we're limited in our stores of creatine phosphate. And so we have about 10 or 15 seconds worth of creatine phosphate that can contribute. And then after that, we've exhausted our, um, our stores of creatine phosphate. This is why, this is some of the reasons that you see people taking creatine phosphate. They will take it as a supplement so it allows that force duration to last a little bit longer. It allows us to get that extra rep or two in our lifts. So that's why that supplementation became so very popular. And there's great research out supporting the efficacy of, of that for people that are, that are using it. Then we move into the next component, glycolysis. Glycolysis is this intermediate intensity, moderate duration, so it's about 30 seconds to 60 seconds of energy, moderate capacity for force output. And what glycolysis is, if you look here on that slide 33, we take carbohydrates and we break it down into, it gets broken down into glucose, which is sometimes referred to as blood sugar. So it's a type of um, uh, molecule in our system, a six carbon chain and it gets broken down by glycolysis. So lysis means to split or break down. So you're breaking down glyco. Gly uh, glycolysis is the breaking down of glucose, and that breaks it down into pyruvate. So when it gets broken, there's ATP that gets released. And then you have pyruvate, which is a three-carbon chain and a three-carbon chain, and that can be broken down subsequently through other means, including oxidatively. So that is our next system. The first two we might look at as saying that they can be used anaerobically. And then there's an oxidative system, which is using oxygen or another word for oxygen is aerobic. It's the aerobic system, low intensity, long duration. They're very efficient, high capacity for energy, but there's a low capacity for force output. So you may be able to do something for a long time, but you won't be able to produce a lot of force while doing it. And we can get oxidative um, metabolism can take place with fat. And, and we love, oxidative loves fat as sources. 
And so it takes fat, it's got free fatty acids, breaks that down into beta oxidation. It goes into acetyl-CoA and then into the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle, produces ATP. Well, what about carbohydrates? Well, carbohydrates will go into, be converted to glucose. And then we're gonna have glucose glycolysis, glycolysis, and it's gonna be broken down into pyruvate. So a three carbon chain on each side, that'll contact, uh, come into contact with acetyl-CoA, go into the citric acid cycle, boom, more ATP. And then even through protein, through amino acids, and this deanimation can go into acetyl-CoA, go into the citric acid cycle, uh, be delivered and then produce ATP. So we oftentimes see this going through the citric acid cycle and then the electron transport chain. So with that being said, that is the oxidative system. And we have now completed this portion of the webinar. So the CPT, this is domain one of the webinar, where we're going to talk about basic and applied sciences and nutrition. And starting next week, it will be a brief overview of nutrition. Do not get super excited about this. We are not going in deep on nutrition but it is an overview of what's in the CPT text to help better understand in brief what this is. Thank you so much for your time, for listening. For those of you who are ready to take the test, I hope you're finding these helpful. For those of you who are already NASM CPTs, stick with us. We're gonna continue to go through these concepts and help us reiterate some of the things that you may already know and some things that you may wanna brush up on. Uh, you can reach out to me, rick.richie at nasm.org, or you can hit me up on Instagram where I'm most active, at dr.rickrichie. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast. You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine.